Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. This is increment 40. T. Esten Anthropos. And this is Rick, and Jim's in the booth. We're ready to go at the Alamo. This is me, despite the fact that I have recently shed a 10-year beard because of a sleep study. They had to stick things all over my face, so it is still me. And uh, we are, this message today is not only the 40th increment of our Hebrews 2020 series, it is our 29th increment in what we call the Corona series, which has been a series we've done since our separation. And we're delighted to be able to convey the word of God to you today. As I said before, I will be out of pocket or out of pulpit for a couple of weeks, maybe even a little bit more, because my wife Pam will be undergoing a knee replacement surgery, so we certainly would appreciate your prayers, and especially given the fact that I will be her caretaker, so there's extra prayer there. We also, of course, will be in prayer for a couple of other elect ladies, namely Claudia and Linda, who are undergoing similar surgery very soon, and you'll be in our prayers too and in our hearts, as all of you are in my heart, both to die and to live with you. Love that verse, 2 Corinthians 7, 3. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have your word go forth. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And at the length of that blade, there is this blood groove that speaks of your once and for all and for all time sacrifice by which we have eternal salvation and in which we can hope for universal restoration. May this word go forth and find root in hearts that are ready to receive it and ready to convey it to others in a contagious way. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Throughout the entirety of Hebrews, the writer is speaking of the world to come. In Hebrews 13, 14, he speaks of looking for the enduring city to come, a city that continues, a permanent city to come. Just as in Hebrews 1.6 and 2.5, where we just passed through, he speaks of the world to come. Tain oikomenen, tain melusan. And in Hebrews 6.5, he speaks of the age to come. Melontos eonos. So we have this permanent city that is still yet to come. We have this inhabited world that is coming on its way. And we have the age to come. This is the forward look that we are granted and that I call an eschatological orientation in Hebrews. It's also an eschatological focus, which is a Christological focus. 
That forward look is incentive for a forward movement in faith. A forward look to this future world, this coming continuing city, is a incentive, a great incentive for a forward movement by faith. Faith itself is both a future focus and a forward incentive. Faith itself, again, is both a future focus and a forward incentive. In Hebrews 11.1a, faith is the assurance of what's hoped for. Perhaps even better, that word hypostasis should be reality. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. A subjective way of looking at it, that is, in the way of a human experience, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Both of these nuances of meaning, whether faith is the reality of that hope for reality, or whether faith is the assurance of what is hoped for, both of these nuances of meaning apply. In Hebrews 11 and verses 9 and 10, the testimony of Abraham is that, quote, by faith he lived as a stranger in a land of promise, residing in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward, look at that, by faith he was looking forward to a city which and I will say this by a bracketed insert, unlike tents, has foundations. He's looking for a city that has foundations while he lives in this world in tents which don't have foundations because they're ready to move. So again, by faith he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, residing in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, where he was looking forward to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here the writer skillfully compares the present age in which God's people of faith keep moving with a view to the future age in which they rest and finally reside in a city which has foundations. Why plural there? Well, Revelation 21.14 tells us that there are 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12.22, that city is identified with a heavenly mountain, the heavenly Mount Zion, where the king resides. And it's called the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The PT says that his readers have come to that mountain. Please notice that. They have come to that mountain. We could say we have come to that mountain. The heavenly Mount Zion. We have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And not to the earthly Mount Sinai. They, when we, have come to where Jesus is who is the mediator of the everlasting 
the new and the better covenant and whose sprinkled blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Here we may see an agreement between what we know as the preterist, what we call the preterist, and the futurist. The preterist says, we have come to this city. The futurist says, we look for this city. But really, it's both. For in Hebrews 6, 5, it says that Christians then, and we could say now for some, had tasted the powers of the coming age and are partakers or companions of the Holy Spirit in 6, 4 of Hebrews. So that famous, I think it's now become a cliche, the already not yet analogy that now famous already slash not yet cliche theological cliche or eschatological cliche applies in Hebrews but I think a better analogy is Eberhard Jungel what j-u-n-g-e-l Eberhard Jungel his way of speaking of that analogy between the present and the future is, quote, even now, only then completely. So there can be a modicum of the experience of the coming world now, of the coming age now, and even of the cosmopolis, or at least the mental attitude of the city to come. Let Jerusalem, the one to come, come into your mind even now says Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In fact, we may say that faith is that experience. That modicum of the experience of things hoped for. Faith is that experience. But faith is more than an experience. Faith is the reality of that world to come in the now. Now, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 is concerned with precisely who will be renowned and in power and authority in future world. The PT sees a double meaning in the terms man or a man and the son of man in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 through 7. David, in that psalm, in the spirit, ponders on man in comparison to angels. Now recall that David had contemplated angels and their power. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 21.30, the scripture says David was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel the sword held by the Lord's angel. That was during the course of a plague in Israel 
that killed 70,000 people, which if you think of the plague today, the so-called pandemic, 70,000 people in a country of perhaps only 5 million people, that's a big chunk. When David, who was a king and a prophet, considered man in comparison with angels, he asked in the spirit, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned for him? It's kind of like saying, as to the sense of this question, in comparison to the angels who are so great in power and intellect, what is a mere man? David may have been speaking of himself there in one sense. What is a mere man that you'd remember him? Or what is a mere mortal man? One of the terms that's definitive of the word son of man is mortal. God often spoke to Ezekiel as son of man to compare Ezekiel with divinity. He was kind of like saying, hey, mere mortal. Hey, son of man. And so David is saying, in comparison to these angels, just what is a mere man that you'd remember him or a mere mortal man that you would be so concerned for him as to make him the object of such a great salvation? This is a question that the Holy Spirit infused into David's spirit. Many times our spirit, the innermost being of our hearts, has questions. Sometimes those questions are put there by the Holy Spirit. He intends to answer those questions. The word for concerned in the phrase concerned for him in the Greek text of Psalm 8.5 is episkeptomai. You'll see it in the printed version spelled out in the Greek and the English transliteration. The sense is, what is the son of man that you visit him? And the shorter lexicon of the Greek New Testament that was edited by F. Wilbur Gingrich and Frederick William Danker, I think correctly, they say that episkeptomai means to visit him with the purpose of bringing salvation. Gingrich supplies Luke 168 and Luke 716 as proof of this meaning. In Luke 168, it says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has visited Episkeptomai and made a ransom for his people. And in Luke 7.16, after Jesus raised the widow's son at Naim, or Nain as it sometimes appears, it says, fear seized them all, and they spontaneously glorified God, saying, a great prophet. Were they speaking of the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15? A great prophet has arisen among us, and they also said, 
God has visited his people, episkeptomai. And so this visitation has a decidedly soteriological or salvific meaning. He visits us. When God visits, he offers a ransom for his people. When God visits his people, he raises them from the dead. Both of those are salvific. Both point to the crucified and risen Jesus. But does this soteriological meaning pertain in Hebrews 2? That's a good question. Does it, this salvific meaning of episkeptomai, does that have relevance to our passage in Hebrews 2? Well, let's look ahead because we're ready to take a path in the wood. Robert Frost, who spent some time in Vermont, wrote about that famous Two paths converged in a wood. I chose the one less traveled by. And then Everlast, the rapper, added later in a song, and he said, the road less traveled sure got a lot of stones. Wisdom. Does this have the meaning of to visit him to bring him salvation. Well, let's look ahead just a little bit at 2.16 of Hebrews to foreview this. For surely he has taken hold, epilambano is used, he has taken hold, epilambano. Not of angels, sounds familiar, He has taken hold, not of angels, but he has taken hold. He says the word again, epilambano, taking hold of. The seed of Abraham. Now that this taking hold of the seed of Abraham is a saving or salvific or soteriological taking hold is signified by Verse 18 of chapter 2, where it says about the Son, God's Son, in whom he spoke in these last days, that, quote, in that he suffered, being tested, he is able to help. This time the word is boetheo, B-O-E, long E, that is, T-H-E-O, long O, boetheo, those who are being tested. He's able to help those who are being tested. Now, this little verb, boetheo, belongs to soteriology because it means to help in a very significant way here. It can mean to help out of a situation, but it can also mean to help in terms of an eternal salvation. The same pertains to this word, epilambano. It means to lay hold of forcefully. And I think it's better illustrated, no better illustrated anywhere else than Matthew 14, 28 to 29. When Peter was bid to walk on water, Jesus was out on the water. Peter began to sink and he cried out, save me. And just then Jesus took hold, epilambano, of Peter and saved him. Please notice that. 
Epilambano and Sozo. He laid hold of him and saved him from drowning in that case. So even as Jesus took hold of Peter, who was of the seed of Abraham, and saved him, so the Son of God took hold of the seed of Abraham to help them. The seed of Abraham there is a code word for all of humanity, as we'll see. And so this verb boethio or boethio belongs to soteriology. So does epilambano. So does sozo, S-O-Z-O, long-O. So here in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, the paragraph that we've kind of settled in on for a moment, in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, along with the eschatological, Christological, and anthropological truth is the soteriological or saving reality of Christ. But as always, there is more. Whenever you think you've hit a wall with insight and you can't go any further, you've hit an impasse, now you've reached this great spiritual development through insight, there's always more. The day you say there is no more is the day when you say, I am full, I have need of nothing, and you're part of the church at Laodicea. As always, there is more. God is said to remember man. That can either mean a man, like David, or a man or a woman like you or me. Or it can mean an a double entendre, as the French call it, double entendre, a double entendre, a double meaning. It can also mean humanity as a whole, the entirety of all of humanity over time, diachronically speaking. God indeed remembers. Humanity as a whole, even as he visits the Son of Man to bring salvation. This principle is entirely congruent with the testimony of Titus. I'm learning gradually that the pastoral epistles, as they're called, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, often have summary statements that interpret large pieces of the New Testament in a very succinct way. The testimony of Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared. We have the grace of God in Hebrews 2.9. We have it in Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared. Now, some translations say bringing salvation. Some, some people say Offering salvation, but all it says is soterios pasen anthropois, salvation of all humanity. Salvation of humanity. All of humanity. Pasen, P A S I N, all. Anthropois, not just all men, but all humanity. Soterios, soterios. Salvation, passing all anthropois human beings. You get that?
If you do get that, then you're responsible for that insight. And God holds you accountable to forsake damnable doctrines that suggest otherwise that God's grace does not mean salvation for all of humanity. From this day forward, you're accountable. And so am I. I bet some of you are wished you hadn't hit on this website today and listened to this message. Because I'm not going to tell you God wants to prosper you. He never wants you to go through any suffering. He never wants you to go through any trials. God's going to just bless you. He just wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. He wants to spoil you rotten. Through much adversity, we will enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that's Bible doctrine. That's Acts, 7, Acts 14, 22. He has apportioned a certain amount of affliction to us, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. In this world, this world in which we die, you will have tribulation. John sixteen thirty three. just in case you're wondering. The testimony of Titus goes on to say later, you skip a few verses down to 3, 4, and 5a. And it says, when the generosity and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When did God save us? Well, when I believed, when I went down the aisle, when I gave up my Jack Daniels and Lucky Strikes. No. He saved you when his philanthropy and benevolence appeared when his kindness and passionate love for humankind appeared. And where did that appear? In the crucified and risen Christ. He saved us. Who's us? All of humanity. God's grace, and we know a little bit more about his grace already from today. God's grace has two components, generosity and philanthropy. Generosity and philanthropy. His grace is a universally saving grace. Hebrews 2.9 is about to say something about that. And in this message and in our last message, the 30th in a series in our separation, I won't be done with Hebrews 2.9. And I'll leave it open. But let's go back to Hebrews 2 and to Psalm 8, which is quoted within it. The Son of Man can have the meaning of a specific human being, of a mortal human being, as opposed to the immortal angels who cannot die, or it can have the meaning of humankind in an extreme generality. The extremist generality is universality. So son of man can have a collective meaning of all of humanity, just as man or anthropos can also mean the same. It can be an individual person, man or woman, an individual human being, or it can be a collective human being. Remember Neil Armstrong in July 20th, 1969, 1056 Eastern Time. 
his foot lands on the moon. And as he begins to take a walk on the moon, he says, that's one small step for man, and he might have meant a man himself, one giant leap for mankind. What was he doing? He was giving the double meaning of man or mankind. Linguistic purists said he did it wrong. He should have said a man instead of man, but we get the meaning. I don't know if he had Psalm 8 on his mind. I don't know. In the same way, the seed of Abraham, which we're told in the scriptures will be like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And apparently they have at least estimated recently that the stars in the celestial heavens and the billions and trillions of galaxies that are out there are evidently more numerous than the sands of the sea. I don't know how they know that. I haven't counted myself. But the seed of Abraham can have also a specific or a general, sometimes even universal meaning. Because the seed of Abraham is Christ, ultimately, in Galatians 3.16, and Christ is all and in all in Colossians 3.11. That's already true in the church of the firstborn. It will yet be true in all of humanity. And in one sense already is. Just as God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now if man, anthropos, has a double meaning. A man and humankind can either mean either one. Then both meanings may, may well be intended here by the P.T., That such is in fact the case, and we can make a case that that is the case, will be borne out soon. Moreover, the Son of Man will also be shown to carry a double meaning. First, of the extreme individual meaning of a particular Son of Man. And then the extreme general meaning of a collective or universal all of humanity. We're approaching now an answer to the question that I think the Holy Spirit might have put in our spirit. Why or in what sense did the Son of God need to be perfected or completed? And why through suffering? The sense in which the Son of God needed to be completed is that he needed to be completed in solidarity with all of humanity if indeed the mystery of God's will would be fulfilled. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. See, it's good we went there first before we came to Hebrews. And God viewed it as fitting. I'm looking slightly forward here to Hebrews 2, 10. God viewed it and decreed it to be fitting or entirely appropriate in the extreme. That the son be perfected or completed in this solidarity with humanity 
through suffering. This is the case because this suffering was the very best way to reveal God's grace, which is his great generosity, his limitless generosity, that is, and passionate philanthropy, love for mankind, his unrestricted, unconditional, self-sacrificing love for humankind. Moreover, this perfect solidarity with humanity required the removal of the sin barrier between God and humanity. If there's going to be a solidarity between God and humanity, the sin barrier has to be removed. Something has to be removed. A wall has to be demolished. It's a barrier that could be once and for all and forever removed by and has been by the suffering of the Son of God. That is, by the Son of God's full experience, which is called tasting of death. And death is the wages of sin. So what he tasted or fully experienced and drank to the dregs, the cup that he drank to the dregs, was the experience of the wages of sin, where sin would have ultimately led all of humanity, an unspeakable and absolute death. He tasted it for everyone. The wages of sin. And by the Son's experience of suffering and absolute death, including God-forsakenness, for all of humanity, in order to remove sin and thus to remove the obstacle of solidarity, the obstacle to it, the solidarity of God and humanity, was sin. It had to be removed, and there was, well, let's just say, the way God deemed for that to be done is for the Son who knew no sin to become sin in order to remove sin once and for all and forever. This is why such an emphasis is laid upon the once and for all and forever sacrifice of the Son as God's Lamb. Not only here in Hebrews, Hebrews 7.27, once and for all, Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 10.2 and 10.10, but also throughout the New Testament, this once and for all, and forever sacrifice, which the Lamb, by which the Lamb took away the sin of the world, John one twenty nine, John one thirty six, John nineteen thirty four to thirty six, Romans six nine to ten, and <clears throat> Romans eight thirty two, First Corinthians five seven, First Peter one eighteen and nineteen, First Peter three eighteen, Revelation five five through six, in fact. Revelations 28 references to the Lamb, and throughout the whole Bible for that matter, and then what makes me, all that makes me say, 
but along the two-edged blade of the sword of the word, there is this blood groove. But can we say about the Son of Man that God visited him to bring salvation if indeed that Son of Man is God's Son? Does God bring salvation to his divine and human son? I think we can say yes, that he can, because listen carefully, and these are just intimations of what's coming, little hints, intimations of what's coming. In Hebrews 5, the cause of eternal salvation, that's what Jesus is called in 5.9, though he were son, that is the divine son of God, though he was the divine son of God, even during the time on earth in 5.8, and therefore fully divine in his days of the flesh. Nevertheless, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and appeals to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reverent obedience. Hebrews 5, 7. When the son was saved from death and he entered death and tasted death for every man, every human being, but he was also saved out from that death after having tasted it. When the son was saved from death, all of humanity was saved from death. But the son was only saved from death. The son was only saved from death. After he had tasted death, the wages of sin for every human being. Romans 6.23, Hebrews 2.9. Now we could just hunker down on Hebrews 2.9. I could spend the rest of my career as a preacher however long that is, just doing sermons on Hebrews 2.9. It'd be easy to just, that's the whole thing. The whole fanning out of Hebrews 2.9 could take years, but we have to move. We can begin to see that the perfection or the completion of the Son might have something to do with sharing with us the need of salvation. With the rest of humanity, the son, to be perfected, had to share the need for salvation with the rest of humanity. The redeemer had to share the desperate need for redemption with those whom he came to redeem. Some students of Hebrews in the past, and and I think I include especially Ernst Kosman, whose book on the wandering people of God, he gets into this in depth. They've seen this theme being in line with the Gnostic myth of the redeemed redeemer. But I think it seems more likely that the Christ willingly coming into a place of needing to be saved on the cross is a theme that resounds not from Gnostic mysticism, 
but from many of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 3, Psalm 5. Psalm 18, verses 19 to 20, which is the Septuagint 17, verses 19 to 20. Psalm 22, which is the Septuagint Psalm 21, famously. Psalm 54, 1 to 2, which is the Septuagint 53, 1 to 2. Psalm 69, 1 to 4, which is the Septuagint 68, 1 to 4. In all of these, a royal messianic figure needs to be saved. We see this in Romans where Christ, the one who died in Romans 6, Romans 8, 34, he's called the one who died. Christ is the one who died. Was also justified in Romans three twenty six. If you translate this correctly, the one who's justified there is Jesus, but along with him, everyone else. And Romans 6, 7. Notice it says the one who died. Because when the one died, all died. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Now the myth of the redeemed redeemer should rather be called the reality of the saved savior. However, like the Gnostic myth, like the Gnostic myth, which is taught in religious phenomenology today, where, sadly, Jesus is only pictured as one in a sequence of redeemers who need to be redeemed in the Gnostic redeemer myth. Like this Gnostic myth, however, the redeemer and the redeemed are in solidarity, ultimately. This is not foreign to Psalm 34, 18 to 20, for example, where it is shown that the righteous one endures many afflictions, but the Lord Yahweh saves him out of them all, even declaring that Yahweh keeps all his bones intact, not one of them is broken. Psalm 34, 20, Exodus 12, 46, and John 19.36, all of this put together means that the one whose bones were not broken is the lamb. So there is a redeemed redeemer, and there is a redeemer who is of one entity with the redeemed. Otherwise, that's got to be true because Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the firstborn, and I think Brian Messick, Pastor Messick's message will have something Very profound to say about the firstborn. Now, I have a deeply embedded memory of being a young man at the University of Vermont where the myth of the Redeemer was being taught in a class in religion that I was taking in 1973, I'm pretty sure. I majored in English there and minored in religion. Didn't really graduate till 76 because I had a little hiatus between 73 and 76. But I remember in that class giving the testimony of my encounter with Jesus Christ, which I had at the University of Vermont in January of 1972, a very profound and life-altering moment. And I actually gave my 
testimony in that class because of the way Jesus was being taught as just one in a sequence of myths of a redeemer myths. It seemed when I, (laughs) I didn't give it with perfection, but I gave it in such a way that it seemed to be very off-putting to the professor. And it was also extremely contradictory to his teaching on the phenomenology of the Redeemer myth of whom Jesus was supposed to be just one of many examples. I gave my testimony to sort of counter that and kind of tried to put across that when I encountered the reality that is Jesus, there was a sense that there is nobody else like him. There is no other than Jesus. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no human celebrity in this world today that I would turn my attention to or genuflect to except for Jesus Christ. So I think my testimony came across to him as the account of a psychotic episode by one of his students. In fact, you know what he did? It was a two and a half hour class because I think all the three segments went in one, one meeting in each week. He ended the class abruptly right then. It was only less than half over. And he said, let's adjourn to the chicken bone, which was a bar, a bar in Burlington, Vermont. And I didn't feel like I was part of that invitation, so I just went back to home or wherever it is. I didn't feel like I was invited, so I didn't go. It's a strange sensation, let me tell you, to be visiting that topic again 47 years later. If I knew then what I know now, I think I would have better represented the truth of the gospel and perhaps engaged more intelligently with the professor and my classmates. Maybe that can stand as a lesson. Here's the lesson. We who have been encountered by the Lord or convinced by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, we need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of him through continuing in the word. I've done so for 47 years after that. I don't know if that's going to qualify me for any kind of a crown or not. I don't know. I really don't. Honestly don't know. I fear that it won't. At any event, the PT who wrote or maybe dictated Hebrews to an amanuensis, he clearly sees a double meaning in God remembering man or humankind and God being concerned with the son of man. Now, I think that here, William Lane, whose commentary I'm reading, and I think it's just wonderful. William Lane is right to say this about the PT who wrote Hebrews. He says, quote, he cites Psalm 8, 5 because he wishes to emphasize that Jesus, in a representative sense, fulfilled the vocation intended for mankind. He understood that the parallel expressions Anthropos, man, humankind, and son of man, huios anthropon, or mortal, 
were perfectly synonymous and were to be interpreted in terms of this fact. Yes, I believe Jesus fulfilled the vocation intended for all of humankind. I also believe that Jesus' faithfulness fulfilled the requirement by God of faithfulness for all of Israel and for all of humankind. So I think it goes even deeper than the vocational aspect. But there's more to this representative sense. Jesus' death was also representative, as we will see. Psalm 8 is plainly parallel with Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, which was quoted in Hebrews 1.13, especially by the phrase, under his feet, until all his enemies are put under his feet by the Father, who's the only person along with the Holy Spirit, who is excluded from this subjection. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28. You might want to read that if you're seriously considering some of these things. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28, or maybe 24 to 28, or maybe 22 to 28, in correlation with Psalm 2, 5 through 9. The same feet... The feet of the Son of God, whom God calls God, in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, LXX 44, 7 and 8, those are the same feet, nail scarred, of the Son of Man with whom God is concerned. This is my Son. I'm not only concerned with him, I'm very pleased with him. I'm not only concerned about him, I'm very pleased with him. And he is the son whom God visits with salvation. We're on a strange trail here. We're on a strange trail here. We may have chosen the lesser traveled of two paths in the woods. But it seems that it is, though it is right to say, we are complete only in God's Son. It's right to say that because it's right in Colossians 2.10. But it's also right to say that God's Son is only complete in us in all of us and it seems right to say on this path though we are complete only by being saved by him he the son is only complete by being saved with us In fact, standing just a little ways down this same path, the PT is leaning up against a birch tree. I love birch trees. He's got a corncob pipe in his mouth like my father used to smoke, only, of course, there's no tobacco in it, and he's not really smoking. He just likes to have the uh, corncob pipe. PT's got a corncob pipe 
and he's leaning up against the birch tree down the path a little from us. You know what he says? He says, he who's sanctified and they that are sanctified are all of one. One solidarity, one entity, the redeemed and the redeemer, the saved and the savior, the sanctifier and the sanctified. He's not afraid, not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because he is the firstborn of a great big band of siblings. Romans 8, 29. Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. Not only that, we have the same father. Go and tell them about my God and your God. Tell them about my father and your father. And when you pray, say, our father. With the son of God as the firstborn. Hebrews 2.11. Man, one word man, quote, close quote, man in the middle, can be taken as a human being or as humanity in its extreme generality. The son of man can be taken as any man or every man or every person or as an extremely particular man who is about to be named for the first time in this homily. One to whom future world is subjected and one who, quote, by the grace of God, tasted death for, uh, see, Pentecostal, tasted death for every human being through all of time. But you know what we're doing right here, and I'm ready to close pretty soon, but we're running too fast right now. I'm running. I find myself doing that in the study. I'm out of breath. I'm running. I'm seeing, wow, this is true, then this is true, then this is true. We're running through this path in the woods. We don't want to trip over a root. So let's walk. Let's slow down. Walk exegetically. Take our walking stick, our exegesis, and get our breath back a little bit. Let's look at Hebrews 2.5. Through 8a. For you see it is not to angels. That God subjected the future world. About which we are speaking. He speaks about it all the way through Hebrews as we saw. Now somewhere. Psalm 8 4 through 6. LXX 8 5 through 7. Someone. The Holy Spirit via David. Psalm 8 1. Solemnly testifies. Saying. What is man or humankind. That you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned for him. Visit him for the purpose of salvation. You made him inferior to angels. That's true of all humankind. It's also true of one individual person called the son of man. You made him inferior to angels for a short while. That means two things, all of human history and 33 short years for one individual person. You crowned him, 
getting to the end of our Corona series within our Hebrews 2020 series. You crowned him with glory and honor. Latin is gloria et honorae, honore coronasti eum. And set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. End of quote, Psalm 8, LXX 5 through 7. Now, if we follow my custom of capitalizing the pronouns that refer either to God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, I like to capitalize the pronouns he, him, when speaking of either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. That's an old-fashioned thing to some people, but I don't care. If we follow my custom of capitalizing the pronouns that refer to God the Father or God the Spirit or God the Son, then our translation of this paragraph, this expositional paragraph, would read like this and reflect this. When you get the printed page, you'll see. Hebrews 2.5, For you see, it is not to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. Now somewhere, someone, capital S, the Holy Spirit via David, solemnly testifies, saying, What is man that you remember him, capital H-I-M, or the son of man that you are concerned for him, capital H-I-M. You made him, capital H-I-M, inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him, capital H-I-M, with glory and honor and set him, capital H-I-M, over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his, capital H-I-S, feet. I'm speaking of the half of the double entendre that refers to one individual particular person whose name is yet to be mentioned. Wait for it. So we should do this with these capitals because the Holy Spirit, someone, is testifying through this PT who wrote Hebrews that both humankind in its extreme generality and the Son of Man in its extreme particularity. Are you listening to me in Madison, Mississippi? Are you listening, Mary Helen? I know you are. Fred, I know you are. The Son of Man in extreme particularity is intended here. Hence, the double entendre, or to be French, double entendre. Now, we have much more to say about this, but not right now. This is the end, and we'll appear one more time and have another message, which will be increment 41, and it will be the 30th increment of the Corona series. Amen.